Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness, where we will be sharing insights into the world of mental health and wellness as we explore traditional medicine and holistic healing options. It's time to have new conversations about mental health. Join Mara James, the founder and CEO of the Hugs for Life Healing Center, as she guides us along this journey. And now, let's talk wellness. Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness. I'm your host, Mara James, and I want to say thank you for joining us for today's conversation. During Let's Talk Wellness, we focus on healing, understanding, growth, and spirituality. It's part of the Hugs for Life's Healing Center, a subsidiary of the nonprofit organization called the Extraordinary Lives Foundation, where we are devoted to supporting mental health awareness and providing resources for children and their families. As the founder of these organizations, I have the great joy of collaborating with an amazing team of people to help bring healing to children and families around the world. You can find out all of our information at elfempowers.org, and you can see this link in show information. Now, let's talk wellness with today's guest, Vanessa Morgan. Vanessa is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So great to have you. Um, so, of course, my favorite question, and everyone always wants to know, why did you get into this field? You know, that's a great question. I suppose it's how deep you want to get and how far you want to look back. Um, I think the most true answer is that most therapists, I think, get into the field of healing because they have some healing to do for themselves. And in my childhood, it was kind of confusing at face value because I grew up a lot of stability. I always felt very loved, but I struggled kind of with my mental health growing up. I had some depression, anxiety, separation anxiety, which turned into trouble in relationships um, as I got older. And so I went to grad school. I got pregnant not once, but twice in grad school. <laughs> so that was really like rocket fuel for, oh my goodness, I have my son and my daughter now. I really have to get my life together. So I started studying attachment, working with um, you know infants and new moms and dads. And that really led me to the field of couple therapy, which is what I do and specialize in now. Beautiful. That's amazing. And I love that. Um, no one's ever said that. Like a lot of people get into therapy because they have their own healing to do. For me, wouldn't everybody th be a therapist? Because doesn't everyone have healing to do? Well, I think it's a kind of a unique, it's really hard to say anything that's globally true about humans because humans are so complex, right? But the therapist that I know well enough to know is there's often this dynamic in childhood where you can be a bit parentified. So if your parents, you know, don't have a great relationship, they may be talking to you about how the relationship doesn't feel good or you just become kind of aware of the needs that aren't being met by mom and dad for each other. And so you kind of conform to try to meet those needs. So it's like that unique character, you know, um, I don't want to call it a defect, but formation of character to try to caretake. I think that a lot of therapists have found themselves in childhood that turns into this kind of caretaker role in adulthood. And not everybody has that. Right. That makes sense. And I know we spoke a lot um, last week about how parents' relationships, a couple's relationships, whatever, um, really has a direct impact on the child. A hundred percent. It's 
it really affects their feelings of safety, of belonging, of kind of how they learn to internalize how to give and receive love in relationships, mm. how to set boundaries, what's okay for them, you know, what's not okay. Their sense of self is is really determined on how available their caregivers are to see them, right? To be attuned to them, to see them. And if they're not in a relationship that kind of where the parents feel felt and seen by each other, it's really hard to offer that to the kids as, as much as they need. Interesting. What happens when there's only one parent? Is it, does that affect like how much the child is seen? You know, I think, you know, you have added stressors, financial stressors or emotional stressors, but what the research found is that children only really need one solid attachment figure. So it's, it's not necessarily attachment doom if there's only one one parent. They need one parent that's well-supported, well-resourced, and, and has good attunement, but it doesn't have to be a two-parent household for kids to be okay. Right. Beautiful. Um, interesting. I have so many questions. So and is it, it's definitely, I'm hearing you say it's definitely important about the caregiver versus, you know, how a child is seen and heard in school or with friends. Yeah. Attachment figures are really, it's like their most primary relationship, the person that they go to when they're hurt or scared for it's the person that teaches them how to work with their own emotional states and to soothe those. Right. So, so, you know, teachers and friends, they all have their role and it's very important in, in child development, but not as important as those, those relationships with, you know, mom and dad in that, in those attachment years. So when the brain is wiring zero to five, it, it, it you know, your, your attachment system is kind of plastic or malleable throughout the lifespan, but it's the most sensitive kind of critical period in that zero to five range. Oh, interesting. It's so funny. I keep thinking back to my childhood where I always, I had zero for two for parents, um, both were mentally ill, but I thank God had a live in um, nanny babysitter, whatever you want to call. And I think that she was able to give me that go-to safety support that helped get me through. Yes, that's a great point. It doesn't have to be a biologically related parent. It's one attachment figure that is consistent and um, attuned. That, Could it be a sibling? You know, it can be a sibling, but that gets more compromised because that sibling is going to be parenting from a childlike place. So mm. a sibling can offer you consistency and love, but not maybe the mental sophistication of how to deal with more complex feelings um, yeah. you know, that are really scary or really overwhelming for a child, right? They're going to have their own limitations. Oh, interesting. So, and then, then of course you have a child going through a divorce, right? And sometimes I've seen parents and they're just like, will tell the child how bad their, their spouse is, or, you know, the ex-spouse. And I just, I don't see any good out of that. It breaks my heart. No, it's so painful, right? That, so the parent that's kind of bad mouthing the other parent there could be a lot of things going on, but you generally see that when someone has a hard time resolving grief. And so they're using the children to kind of self-soothe mm. um, is, is like a way of a, you see mommy or daddy is bad. Then, then I feel better somehow, right. makes that loss and that grief easier. Um, but really what yeah. for the parent, that's kind of using their kids to, to soothe themselves in that way. Right. They're not able to kind of objectively think about the kid's experience. Right. So they try to draw them into theirs. So if I was a parent listening to this, I'd be, you know, like, like I want to, you know, hear like 
okay, I think I have a good relationship. How do I know if I have a good relationship? Like what advice would you give to that parent listening that's questioning, you know, especially as moms, we're always like, A, wanting to be the best parent and always feeling guilty about anything and everything. So what guidance can you give there? So is the question about, do you have a good relationship with your child or a good relationship with your spouse? Great. I would say both. Let's start with the spouse. With the spouse. So, I mean, no relationship is perfect. You're not going to get all of your needs met. But one of the hallmark kind of things that I look for in what's called in the attachment community, a secure functioning relationship, is can a couple both hold their own experience of their upset, their frustration when conflict arises and still have space to consider their partner's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Can they still be curious about their partner's needs? Can they integrate those needs? Do they have good empathy for their partner's perspective? Those are some of the things that I would say, look at to kind of assess the health of your relationship. If you don't feel like you're getting a ton of curiosity or empathy about your perspective, there's probably some room for healing and growth there. Right. Oh, wow. So you said secure attachment relationships. So it's called secure functioning. So the idea is about 50 to 60% of the population is what we call securely attached. That means they had good enough parenting. Their parents were mostly attuned. And so they'll go on to have secure attachment in adulthood. But the rest of the population who didn't have as secure of, of growing up, they more orient to kind of fear-based or defense responses when in conflict. So when they're in fight, fight, or freeze, they're not in this collaborative relational space. They're more in like a one-person system. So that would be insecure functioning, whereas secure functioning is a two-person system. But you can learn to function securely regardless of your attachment system growing up. So that's why it's like secure functioning versus securely attached. Anybody can learn the behaviors of how to relate in a way that's pro-relationship. Interesting. So when you, so you work with a lot of couples, correct? Tons. Yes. Like 90% of my practice is couples. Oh, wow. Um, when you working with a couple, do you ever find that you need to work with one of them or each of them individually? Cause they have some blocks and they're not willing to like, I don't know if the word is humble themselves, but you know, enough to hear what the other person's saying. Yes. So I think um, I mostly just work with couples because I truly believe that things are kind of like a system and, and both people are colluding in the dynamic, whether they know it or not. Having said that, though, sometimes I need to do work with the partner in the room to help an individual maybe do some inner child work, do some self-soothing work so they can get themselves more in a relational space right? It's really about learning to regulate the nervous system so that you can kind of begin to think about another person's experience. If you're not thinking about another person's experience, it's because it doesn't feel safe enough to do so, right? So sometimes I do have to work with the individual to get them in a state where they are more relational, but it's with their partner in the room. That is so interesting. Can you expand upon that? So you, someone needs to feel safe. Can you? Yeah. So it comes back to this idea of we learn from our caregivers as children, how to regulate our nervous system, right? Whether that's done with someone so that we talk to someone about how we feel and their response helps us calm down. That's what's called co-regulation. So we're, we're using each other to kind of help calm our nervous system. And then there's people who based on their childhood experience who didn't get a lot of what's called co-regulation who can be more avoidant, right? So this is like they avoid conflict 
They avoid looking at feelings. They've kind of learned to turn the volume down. And then there's other people who um, got kind of like intermittent relationship uh, soothing from their parents, right? And so they they kind of have their volume turned up on their emotions. And oftentimes these people find each other, right? People who are kind of under emotive and over emotive. But what that is, is a dysregulated nervous system. So they didn't necessarily get great attunement from their parents to know how to be the right amount of emotional. Does that make sense? To Are what? you saying opposites or the same are finding each other? Well, all sorts of people find each other, but right. often what finds each other is people who need healing from different polarities, right? People are overly emotive and like seek reassurance from the relationship and people who are under emotive and kind of are more distancing, right? Because there's some kind of integration or healing that needs to happen in the middle. Mm. Um, and so, but both of those things are caused by a dysregulated nervous system, by a nervous system that didn't learn from their, their parents how to co-regulate. Wow. I have to write that one down. I just had to type that. <laughs> um, so do you think sometimes um, an adult will choose the wrong partner based on, you know, like what, what, what happens like choosing the right versus the wrong partner, to, like what maybe to teach them a lesson or what might not be the best person with them for them, but, and based on just all like what you're saying with their nervous system and where they yeah. have their, their background. Yeah, so people kind of have a baseline of what feels familiar and safe to them, safe in quotation marks, is what feels familiar, their brain kind of unconsciously tries to create more of because it feels safe, because it's predictable. Our brains like predictability, familiarity. So people tend to pick people who didn't meet their needs similarly in childhood and adulthood because it's familiar. Might not be healthy, but it's familiar. It might not be healthy. It might not be what they truly want or need, but it, it's how it's the unconscious dynamics playing out. Right. Do you think a couple can break through this without having a professional to work them work with them? I think that I want to think that it can be done, right? Especially with social media and you know, podcasts and all of this, this wealth of knowledge that's becoming available to people. But I think it's much better if you can have a, a person that's a professional that is kind of grounded in this kind of research yeah. to help facilitate the process. Cause it's just so easy to get triggered. Like couples, you sit in a room with them in one size and the other person's like immediately so upset, right? Because like what that sign means to their brain is so deeply ingrained. And what it means to me is like, hmm, I wonder what that meant, right? So sometimes having a third party, like holding this curious space of like, of wondering what these different things mean in a couple helps couples break out of this cycle that they, they're in because the brains tend to make stuff up sometimes and automate things, right? So someone can hear their husband sigh and they think that means their husband doesn't love them, but it really means that they're starting to feel overwhelmed. And so my mm -hmm. view of a role of a professional is to start to create some more space around these assumptions that we make about what things mean in our relationships. Oh, I love that about the sigh. That's so funny because I'm overly sensitive and I'm always like, what's that? What's that? Um, that's so interesting. What other things have you seen with couples? Like, like that sigh is a great example. Um, so many times, you know, do you ever see my cousin Vinny at the movie? 
I have, but uh, yep. a long time ago. Watch it. It's really fun. And again, so um, at the beginning, um, one of the actors said, I shot the clerk like out like what I shot the clerk and later on he's like I you know repeating you said I shot the clerk right so the question versus the statement and how people hear things and how we hear things because we get defensive do you find that so often that we're not able to hear you know um what someone's saying or we misinterpret it or the person's saying and they're not realizing what they're saying so what one of my mentors says we pick, we project and we provoke, meaning we pick partners that are familiar and feel similar. We project that they're doing things that they may not be doing, right? We project emotions, our own emotions onto them. And then we kind of provoke, meaning we unconsciously teach people what is acceptable in relationship to us. Mm, the three P's. Yeah. That is a good one. I love that. Um, pick project and provoke wow um are there some times when you're working with a couple and you see like neither budging or it's just not going to work and it's best possibly if they aren't together so I will never personally tell people I think they need to get divorced I mean what like the most time I spend with someone is once a week right yeah. And so I'm humble enough to, to, to realize that it'd be unethical to ever tell people, Hey, I think you should get divorced, but I will say that I'm concerned for their, you know, the, the, their children for the outcome of their own mental health. You know, that, that study came out of Harvard is that like the number one thing that affects our longevity is the health of our relationship. So I will express my concern for people's overall mental and physical health over time. If they continue in a relationship that is toxic but never so overt, like you guys should just get a divorce. No. <laughs> right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, right. For our own mental health and wellness and for longe longevity, right. Yeah. Doing it for ourselves as well as for our children. Wow. 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 Um, I know you shared with me um, some things about childhood trauma and how it can leave scars and have an effect. And I'd love to get into that um, as soon as we're going to take a really quick break and we will be right back. In these shifting and changing times, more and more lives are being impacted by mental health. The Extraordinary Lives Foundation, also known as ELF, is transforming the way people view and navigate mental health challenges. Their mission is to improve children's mental health and wellness and support families by providing educational tools, resources, and awareness events. ELF encourages families to recognize symptoms, overcome the stigma, and reach out for help. Through prevention, early intervention, and holistic treatment, we believe many of the big problems facing today's youth can be transformed within a generation. Extraordinary Lives Foundation is excited to offer the Hugs for Life Healing Center, growing a worldwide network of approved holistic healers and bridging the gap between traditional and complementary healing options. Visit the Extraordinary Lives Foundation website at www.elfempowers.org to find out more about their resources and events. Together, we can change the conversation around mental health. We hope you 
hope that you're enjoying today's Let's Talk Wellness podcast. And if you have a topic that you would like us to explore, we would love to hear from you. Simply email us at info at elfempowers.org. That's info at elfempowers.org. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Let's Talk Wellness. I'm your host, Mara James, and today we're speaking with Vanessa Morgan, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Welcome back, Vanessa. Okay, so we left off talking about um, how if a child's bullied at school or there are different types of traumas, either what you know you call big T and little t, can affect um, future relationships. So if you can share with us about different types of traumas and then their effect on future relationships. Yeah. So I like to kind of define trauma as anything, any experience that kind of overwhelms our nervous system Mm. and we are left to deal with that alone. So it's kind of like this state that we can get in where we're just completely freaked out and don't know how to cope around it. And not only that, but we are left feeling like there isn't someone that can understand that can soothe us and can help us out of that. And so by that definition, you can imagine there's a very big, broad spectrum of what can be considered traumatic to a nervous system, right? So it could be something um, like bullying, you know, and I was telling you when we were talking before, a lot of things do come from childhood, right? Or there's transgenerational trauma, you'll see kind of like ways of navigating alcoholism or abuse or things that get passed down generation to generation. But then there's certain things that like people have really nice childhoods. It checks out everything reports very kind of nice, but then they get into middle school and they experience this kind of like social ostracism. And then that can affect their relationship growing up. So it's not just childhood, like mom and dad stuff. It's also social, how it affects, you know, how your, your teenage years affect you and how much you felt included. So a lot of what affects our trauma around relationships is this sense of belonging. Do we belong? Do we belong to this person? Do we belong to this larger group? And when the answer is no, we can form some, some trauma around that. Wow. Yeah. I'm just, you made me think about um, like that sense of belonging and the sense of feeling lonely, right? I saw Oprah interview Dr. Vivek Murthy, U.S. Surgeon General a few months ago at UCLA. And he said that we are in a pandemic where one out of two Americans are feeling lonely and it's going to take a spiritual awakening to change that. And um, I mean, it's just, you know, COVID has not had a great effect on that. And it's just, yeah, it's unbelievable, right? And we're like a Band-Aid society, right? We're like, oh, we'll just drink or eat or buy more of this thing or scroll on social media. And so our bodies is where our trauma is stored, right? They, it doesn't have a chance to kind of release that trauma unless you're very conscious and very intentional about it. And so, so, so you, so the body, so talk about that. That's really interesting. The body um, holds it. And how would you really, I mean, is it going out for runs going to release it? Is it something you're, you're working on healing and emotionally has to be released? I know there are some healers. I've worked with um, a shaman that's like released stuff from my body. So how does um, traumas from the body get released? So this is like newer research, right? This is kind of like cutting edge research in the last like 10 years. We're really realizing that trauma is stored in the body. And so some of it's still a mystery to me where I'm like, please help me understand how trauma is stored in the body. And I wish I had a very eloquent answer for you. And the answer is, I don't know totally how to explain it, but that's what the research is kind of showing us. 
Um, and, and there are many ways to kind of release it. And I think like talking about it and emoting about it is, is the, the beginning. But when we learn to kind of connect our talking about emotions, where we also feel it in our body and start to connect the sensations that we feel in our body when things start to happen in our lives. So say our spouse says something to us and you feel this contraction in your chest or in your solar plexus, you might want to start tuning into your body and, and wondering, okay, what is my body telling me? And it's oftentimes your body's telling you, uh-oh, we've bumped into an old memory, something that um, you know feels threatening here or something that we need to set a boundary around. But the problem is people tend to ignore those cues and then don't end up setting that boundary or don't end up communicating that need because they're so checked out. And so the relationship suffers because we're constantly teaching, like I said before, our partners how to love us and treat us. And so if we're not tuned into ourselves and, and our own body and our, our needs and our feelings, how's our partner going to know what we need? Wow. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> that is so amazing. Um. So are there a handful of things that you could recommend that a parent can look at in their child to see what's going on, if there's anything that they need to be aware about? And you know, sometimes, you know, I always say like our parents did the best they could and we do the best we could. And of course, to help us not feel guilty because what mother doesn't or what parent does, no, mostly mothers, what parent mother doesn't feel guilty. But how to um see maybe take the temperature of where the child's at if there's anything that they need to help them with or get them help with. Yes. So I just want to reiterate again: there's no such thing as perfect parenting. There's only good enough parenting, and children really need some amount of struggle and to evolve and grow, right? And so I think you know parents can easily get in this hyper vigilance of like, oh no, are our kids okay? And then that guilt kind of obscures our ability to really read them. And so I want to say first step is just kind of willing to work with and soothe your own anxiety as a parent so that you're making sure you're getting the most kind of objective view of your child as you can. Because often what times or oftentimes what happens is parents kind of take their own childhood trauma and they never want their kid to feel the pain that they felt. And so they kind of apply this miscalculation of how to parent because they're parenting their old trauma rather than parenting a current situation, right? Wow. So, oh my goodness. <laughs> say say that again. So so when we have our own trauma in childhood, parents are very attuned to or aware of the feelings that they found unbearable, where their trauma is stored. So whether it's rejection or being told no in a way that was shaming. So they're like, oh, I never want my kid to feel that. So I'm going to parent in a way that they never feel that, but it's too much of an overcorrection. It's misattuned because it's based in their own stuff and not their objective viewing of their, their, what their individual little kiddo's soul needs to grow and thrive. Wow. Where were you and my kids were younger. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what you asked me though is warning signs. So what I'll give is warning signs that your relationship or the health of your relationship may be in, impacting your child. So one thing is you want to look for if they're overly kind of aware of the conflict between you and your partner. So they're like, mom, dad, what were you guys saying? Or was there a conflict? What'd you talk about how to come out? Or did daddy do this? Right? Like overly kind of interested or showing interest in how the, the parents relationships doing. That's one. Two is then with that information, are they citing? Are they like mommy's bad or daddy's bad? 
or like do the kids kind of say stuff that feels a little beyond their age are they mad at stuff um that their parent is also mad at the other parents so like from my childhood my dad was a full-on workaholic and so my mom had a lot of feelings about that as you can imagine so I was very aligned with my mom and oh dad's bad because he's not coming home he must not love us and so it was really hard to kind of tune out in my adulthood what was my experience versus what was my mom experience of my dad does that make sense so it's like you want to look for what's called healthy individuation that your kids can have a different experience of things and people um based on their own experience is a very good sign right you don't want them colluding with your experience you want to encourage them to have kind of an open mind about what their experiences of their parent. And it may be that they come to the same conclusion over time, but you want to just watch for, is my kid colluding with me to take care of me? Right. That's something else you want to look for. And that is so amazing. Just the people, the mothers that I think about that, like they're so caught in it, they wouldn't see it or they need it because they're doing, I mean, obviously they're doing it for their own support. Um, Gosh, it's like, how do we, get them to see that they need to put the oxygen mask on first, you know, because otherwise they're really having a negative effect on their children. But yeah, I think you're doing it, just spreading that awareness of, oh, um, we need to think about our kids as kind of these separate individuals. And am I maybe putting some of my own feelings? So if we look at where we kind of have, I call them big feelings as adults, it's probably a portal into where we need some healing. Yeah, I'm projecting onto, um, you know, everything onto the children. So profound. And I definitely see, you know, younger generations having children, you know, like my generation, the parents, you know, parents taught, you know, they parented out of fear, right? So there was no like emotional intelligence and all that. So now teach, like, and how to parents, like, how was I to teach my children about emotions when I didn't, I didn't learn about them. And that's, you know, we're focusing on young children in school, but also the parents, sometimes maybe the, te- the parents, sometimes the teachers, children sometimes are teaching the parents and it's so amazing um you know watching it but it's you definitely have like this you know parents like in the middle of parenting that they were out of fear the children that are so you know woke and in, in touch with their emotions and then these parents that are just like what is going on <laughs> yes I mean two things. I think if we as parents can kind of orient to this idea, this mission of being cycle breakers is that we're going to do what we can. We're not going to do it all perfectly, but we're going to at least try to be conscious and go into things with some curiosity and awareness because I think it was Einstein that said, you can't change something at the same mental level that it was created at. Right. And so it's really about expanding that awareness or consciousness about how we're relating that is going to evolve and change and break these cycles cycle breakers love it let's create a whole generation of cycle breakers so our children right yeah wow oh is that good um you said something before and we'd love to talk about training one's nervous system to feel safe and before I let you respond I've been um since I've had my mental health challenges nine years ago and here I am nine years later finally starting to feel safe, but it's been a really long um, and expensive journey to feel safe in my body and just everything. And there are definitely triggers that bring me back to that, like, you know, traumatized little girl. How do you train your nervous system to feel safe? That is such a great question. So 
they're and like you said, a very expensive journey because there's these very elaborate, expensive ways to do it. And then there's some things that are free. So I'm going to focus on the free ones today. Yeah. Um, but it's like making sure that you're getting adequate rest, adequate water, adequate nutrition, like really just things that you can do to make sure your baseline health is on point is I can't even stress how important that is, because it's like if you don't even have that to kind of stand on the other stuff isn't going to make that much of a difference, right? So getting adequate exercise, adequate sleep and adequate nutrition is, is very important. Then there's kind of more, um, I guess, privileged ways of do doing it is if you can have therapy and really get that attunement or that corrective experience of someone seeing you and helping you understand your emotions. So that's essentially why therapy works, right? Is that there's another person, another brain thinking with you in the room about a situation and helping you kind of work with the feelings that are generated around it in a way that's actually adaptive versus maladaptive. So not running away from the feelings, right? But working with them. Mm. So working with the feelings, then there's other kind of, you know, spiritual practices. So I, I don't care what your spiritual practice is, but I really believe firmly that it's a, it's a deep spirit, a uh, human need to have some kind of relationship with a higher power. And so that is also a free thing that can be very healing is when you learn to turn things over that disturb your peace to a higher power. That's also a very big part of, of healing and relationships is to know what is ego and what is control versus what is, okay, I'm not going to be fear-based. I'm going to make a different decision based on love, based on growth, based on attraction. So it's learning to kind of shift that paradigm. And that's something that also regulates the nervous system, right? Is when you're not making choices in fear, because when you make a choice in fear, it Ooh. generally leads more fear, right? My whole body shakes when just thinking about it, right? Right. You can't even make like, you're not making a good conscious choice. My and what you said, my favorite is moving from fear to faith. Yes. Um, quite the journey. <laughs> and and it's so funny because I don't even understand, to tell you the truth, how one would do it. Right. So nine years ago when I had my manic episode, it was a very rude, very quick spiritual awakening. It was also beautiful, right? And I needed to see and experience what I did to know that, you know, there's a higher power. But um, how does like that, like, where does one even start if they're looking for a spiritual connection when they just don't have one? So I will refer a lot of people to CODA or SLAA, which are 12 step programs for sex and love addiction or um, codependency, which are all kind of relationship based addictions. And so um, and that the 12 step model, as you probably know, the first thing is, you know, I'm going to turn things over to my higher power. I'm going to admit that I'm powerless against this. And then later down, you know, the steps you learn to turn things over to your higher power. So that's one way that someone can start that's free. Mm -hmm. Well, you, okay. So to say I'm giving it over to higher power when you don't believe in it, like talk is cheap, right? How do they really... You know, I've just been shown so many times in my life, like recently that like, I'm so not in control and the universe has me covered and it's overwhelming how beautiful and amazing it is, but it's taken a while to get here. Like, you know, is it just like to say it, if you keep saying it, you'll finally believe it or seeing is believing and experiencing it. I really kind of believe in like a, um, divine timing around people's healings, right? It's almost, you can't force it. And the most more we like beat ourselves up or feel kind of like frustrated with really our relationship to our higher power, the longer it takes. And so it's like this dance of being 
gentle and open and authentic, but, but realizing that, that your human probably needs something bigger than just yourself to navigate this world. But yeah. everyone just happens, it happens at their own time and not everyone's meant to come to that, right? Like right. that's not, everyone needs that and everyone's meant to, but many, many, many people have found healing with that kind of paradigm shift. Yeah. I love that. I, for me, I see that mental health and spirituality are 100% in alignment and the universe keeps trying to pull us out of alignment. And, you know, once, you know, and it's like the, the, the more spiritual you become, the more the darkness takes over. Um, but that's more later down the road. Um, I love what you said. Like when the student, like when the student's ready, the teacher will come or just when the person's ready. I love that. I love that. And I can't believe that our time is almost up because I feel like we just got started. So we're going to have to have you back for another podcast interview. So Vanessa, what would be the best way for our guests to get in touch with you? So you can find me on social media at Vanessa Morgan Therapy or I'm just my website, VanessaMorganTherapy.com. Okay, beautiful. And we'll also put that information, uh, the links in the show information. So Vanessa and to all of our friends out there listening and watching, I want to tell you that you are amazing. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Wellness. This podcast has been brought to you by the Hugs for Life Healing Center, a division of the Extraordinary Lives Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you would like to listen to more conversations like this, we invite you to subscribe to our mailing list at www.elfempowers.org to be notified when our weekly episodes are published. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to bringing you our next conversation on Let's Talk Wellness.